0: Thank you for downloading this Hay Festival's podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Thank you for for going Sunday lunch for some spiritual uh, refreshment instead, I hope. Um, And apologies about the weather. I guess there's a certain sort of Christian who would say there's divine retribution involved. Um, I prefer to think it's just Wales. (laughs) My name is uh, Stephen Bates. I used to write about uh, religious affairs for the Guardian. Uh, And I'm here to introduce Bishop Jean Robinson. When I was made religious correspondent at the paper in, in 2000, I was under the impression that we were all pretty ecumenical these days. All good chaps together, all seeing the best of each other. Tolerant and understanding. Well, I soon learnt the error of my ways. Terms like heretic and false teacher were being hurled about even in the good old moderate liberal Church of England, and that was only towards Archbishop Ryan Williams. But none was the recipient of more abuse and vilification and vituperation than our guest Jean Robinson. He was elected Bishop of New Hampshire in 2003 and became the first openly gay bishop in church history, or you could say, the first to be open about his sexuality, a bishop partnered in a same-sex relationship. His election by the Episcopal Church, his parishioners in New Hampshire brought down shed loads of abuse. So much so that when Gene Robinson was consecrated bishop, he and his partner, Mark, and the presiding bishop, who who conducted the service, all had to wear bulletproof vests. Outside, mounted police kept order and uh, protected against demonstrators bearing banners with Christian slogans such as, God hates fags. Jean Robinson was elected by the parishioners of New Hampshire, who knew him well as he'd spent many of his uh, years as a priest in the diocese. He could not be subjected to the sort of pressure inflicted over here on Canon Geoffrey John by Archbishop Rowan Williams to stand down when he was made Bishop of Reading in the same year. The established Church of England, of course, doesn't make its appointments democratically, though they do have to be agreed by a Prime Minister and endorsed by the Queen. All this is about homosexuality, which has come to be the most divisive issue in the worldwide Anglican Communion, which I don't need to remind you is the third largest Christian denomination in the world. It's become the litmus test of a sort of orthodoxy a weapon to beat down other members of the same church and gay people who actually want to be Anglicans. It threatens the church with schism at this summer's Lambeth Conference of the world's Anglican bishops in Canterbury. The church is submerged in a split, internally rancorous, divided, mutually hostile, and mutually uncomprehending. This then is the state of the church at the start of the 21st century. And in the eye of the storm, as his book shows, is the man beside me, Gene Robinson, the most controversial Christian in the world today. And as you can see, he's terribly dangerous. He's not the only gay bishop, of course. There are at least two in the Church of England as we speak, um, as well as uh, proportion across the world, probably in keeping with the demographics. All of them so deep in the closet, as the saying goes, that they're almost in Narnia. But of all the 800 odd bishops coming to Canterbury in six weeks' time, Jean Robinson is the only one who has not been invited for who he is, for his sexual orientation, not for what he's done. Jean will be there, of course, but unofficially, placed in a sort of Anglican quarantine, not allowed to join in, or even to take services in an English church, lest he infect the rest. Last year, this is a small plug, I published a book called God's Own Country about religion in America. In the course of researching which, I traveled across the states and met a lot of very weird American Christians, believers in the literal truth of every word of the Bible, believers in creationism, believers in George W. Bush's manifest Christian destiny. Gene Robinson is emphatically not one of those. He's eminently sane, orthodox and Christian, not least in his forbearance. Rowan Williams' probably rather wishes he'd keep quiet or just go away, but he's not. He's here today to give you a taste of what he's really like and what he'd say to Archbishop Williams and his fellow bishops if given the chance. But you're here and you can hear it first. Ladies and gentlemen, the Episcopal Bishop of New Hampshire, the Right Reverend Gene Robinson.
1: What a delight to be with you, and uh, I I must say I feel very, very small um, sharing this and the other stages with some of the literary and cultural giants that are here. Um, uh, I I suppose humility is a good thing always in a clergy person, and uh, uh, I certainly feel it. You know, there's a story that's told of a young man uh, seeing a bishop take off his watch just as he began his sermon and he asks his father, what does that mean when the bishop takes his watch off and puts it in front of him? And the father said, absolutely nothing. (laughs) But I will uh, try to keep my remarks reasonably brief so that uh, I can hear from you. I would much rather this uh, be a conversation between us uh, rather than just a, a one-sided affair. I, I entitled my book, In the Eye of the Storm, and, and, and actually it was only in preparing for these remarks that, that I realized that there were, there were two symbols there. And, and in some way, I think those two symbols point at what's really um, difficult about the church today. The storm, of course, uh, rages around me because uh, I think not so much because uh, I am an openly gay man in a partnered relationship, uh, but just because I choose to be honest about that. My predecessor used to say the H-word we're arguing about is not homosexuality but honesty. The other symbol, though, is the eye of the storm. And I have to tell you that my my most powerful experience of the last five years with with all of what's been coming toward me is God's ability to bring me to that quiet place where those words don't affect me because God's love for me is so, is so very real and God's presence is so palpable that in comparison to that, the storm that swirls around me uh, gets put into perspective. When I was at the general convention uh, awaiting the larger church's consent to my election, one of the clergy in my diocese brought to me a, a, a piece of calligraphy, which has become my kind of mantra in prayer. <clears throat> and it says, sometimes, God calms the storm. And sometimes, God lets the storm rage, and calms His child. And that has been my experience in this last five years. Uh, much as you would see a hurricane uh, uh, from outer space, this this raging storm around me, and yet, uh, God brings me to this kind of quiet place. It's not a place that you and I can achieve on our own, but but a loving God can take us and keep us there. Those two images of the storm and the quiet eye, I think point to what really is at stake in in the church today, which is that all too often it seems to me that the church focuses on religion and not on God. I think the thing that makes me saddest about this this storm going on in the church is that it's all about the church it's all about keeping everything orderly and neat and tidy when god's love is is untidy at best because god is absolutely unbound in terms of whom god loves And God is always flying in the face of the boundaries that you and I would always set between us and them. Because in God's economy, there is no them. There is no them, only us. And so it's going to be neat, uh, uh, not neat, and quite untidy. Because God's love is so profligate. Well, let's talk about the storm first, but I'm going to get back to the I. This conflict seems to have taken people uh, by surprise. And I find that really quite remarkable because conflict has always been a part of the church's life. From the very beginning, from the very earliest church, there was conflict. Peter and Paul, arguably the two greatest saints that ever lived, fought like cats and dogs. And what did they fight over? They fought over... Who's going to be in and who's going to be out? Since that's the same thing we're fighting about today, you you can either be encouraged by that or discouraged by it, that we haven't learned anything in the last 2,000 years. They were actually fighting over the issue of whether one would need to become a Jew in order to follow Jesus or not. Peter and the disciples around Jerusalem were arguing that, yes, indeed, one, one needed to become an observant Jew to follow Jesus the Jew. And Paul, of course, who was traipsing around the Mediterranean, converting anything on two legs, was arguing that those Gentiles did not need to become Jews. And the chances are pretty good that uh, you and I are sitting here as Christians, those of us who are, uh, today because Paul won that argument. Indeed, God's love was so, so wide and expansive that all could be included in it. So one has to wonder why the church is so fearful of conflict. About halfway through each of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, there's this dramatic moment when Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem and the conflict that awaits him there. And certainly the, the passion, as expressed through Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and into the miracle of Sunday, Easter morning, Uh, is all about conflict and about God's loving us through it. Those very strange and disconcerting words from Jesus about that he came to bring not peace but a sword I think is, is meant to point to this notion that when we are trying to follow in God's way, there will always be conflict with the powers that be. When I was uh, strapping on the bulletproof vest just before my consecration, and uh, my daughters, one of of whom is sitting right here, uh, were, of course, worried about us and what might happen, it gave me the chance to say, you know, there are worse things in life than death. It's one of the great rewards of being Christian, that we don't have to be fearful of death. And if, in fact, the gospel is about liberation, it's it's about the liberation from the fear of death. And you and I are freed, absolutely freed, from that fear and able to do remarkable things. And Jesus is always saying that those who follow in God's way will risk persecution and trouble. It's risky business, being Christian and following this man, Jesus. If we want to save our life, we must be willing to lose it. Each of us must take up our cross to follow him. This, this cross that we wear as lovely jewelry ought to be a reminder that following in this way always brings conflict. So why is the church so fearful of conflict? If we are at risk of anything in the church, I think, it's of becoming admirers only of Jesus and not disciples. We Christians love to gather on Sunday morning and, and, and clap each other on the back and congratulate one another at how wonderful it is to be an admirer of Jesus. My goodness, didn't he say some remarkable things? Wasn't, wasn't he just simply wonderful? But Jesus doesn't need admirers. Jesus needs and wants followers, wants real disciples who are freed from the fear of death and willing to go the places that God would have us go. Micah, the great uh, Hebrew prophet, says in response to what does God require of us, Micah says, we are required to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. But are we all not in danger of only loving justice, not doing justice? We love to talk about justice. We love to form committees about justice. We love to issue proclamations about justice. The hard thing is doing justice because it will always get us into trouble. I say to my clergy, especially at their ordinations, if you're not getting into some trouble, some real gospel trouble, then I wonder if it's the gospel you're really preaching. So, what about this storm in the Anglican communion at the moment? The issue of homosexuality is is a complicated one. Uh, it goes very deep, and, and you know that that's true when when the response to the issue is, is greater than the problem it presents. And there is so much more energy behind this, isn't there, than, than one would think would be occasioned by this issue. Now, I would say that there are four things going on in the Anglican communion right now, uh, some of them perhaps not so obvious at first glance and particularly those on the more conservative side will will tell you that what's at issue here is biblical authority i would i would disagree with that i think we all acknowledge the authority of scripture what we're really talking about is the interpretation of scripture and all of us even those who claim to be the most literal in their reading of scripture are really involved in interpretation and the question for us, I think, is is, the, is, is: is the Bible, the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, is the Bible the Word of God, or the words of God? Those with a more literal interpretation, I think, would would believe that those uh, those scriptures are the words of God, as virtually dictated from the light, from the from the very mouth of God. And while I would say that I believe the Bible to be the Word of God, as I attested to in my ordination as a deacon and then as a priest and then as a bishop, I believe the Old and New Testaments to contain everything necessary for salvation. But that's very different than saying that those words, every one of them, no matter how taken out of context, in fact, are the words of God. And... And let's be clear, Anglicans have never done scripture that way. This this, uh, 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 label of traditionalist applied to those who are taking us to a place that has never been our tradition is really a misnomer. Anglicans have always sought to understand scripture in the context in which it was written. The first question we always ask is what did these words mean to the person who wrote them? And then what did we mean what did they mean to the persons to whom they were written, the audience for whom they were written? And only then can we ask the question, are these words eternally binding on you and me in this 21st century? And indeed the, the context is, is so important here, and most of the biblical scholarship that's been done in the last 50 years has not been so much about those words themselves, but about the context in which those words were written so that we might understand them and then ultimately ask, is this a portion of scripture that is eternally binding on us? I might as well bring it up right now. Uh, let's talk about Leviticus. Leviticus. Um, Let's remember that there are only seven verses out of all the Old and New Testaments that seem, at first glance, to relate to this topic of homosexuality. So we look back at Leviticus, at that part of the so-called Holiness Code, um, in which the Hebrews were given laws by which to distinguish themselves from a hostile culture around them. Because it was a hostile culture around them, Uh, growing the population was very, very important. And so some of these laws written in the Holiness Code have to do with valuing and protecting male sperm so that the population increased. Now, we might hold up the part of Leviticus that says, a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman, but we have let go of a couple of the other laws. The laws against masturbation, that's spilling one's seed on the ground, therefore it, it can't produce uh, children uh, to grow this population. Even coitus interruptus, the so-called sin of Onan, in which a man withdraws from the woman bef- before fertilization can take place, and spilling his seed on the ground, as opposed to fertilizing an egg, is, is an act against the community when the community so needed to um, grow its population. Well, we don't feel that way about masturbation anymore. We certainly don't feel that way about birth control, but somehow we hold on to this one in terms of same-sex behavior, uh, as if it were eternally binding. Leviticus was written at a time when everyone was presumed to be heterosexual. And so, uh, in, a, in an odd sort of way, Uh, Same-sex behavior was thought to be heterosexuals behaving badly. If everyone is heterosexual, then same-sex behavior is against one's nature and to be avoided. Indeed, uh, it is an abomination before God. And of course, at the time these scriptures and the New Testament were written, we have to understand how male privilege uh, played into the understanding of humankind. It was, it was an enormous privilege to be male uh, rather than female. And in same-sex behavior, for a man to allow himself to be treated like a woman was the most degrading thing possible. Indeed, ancient armies, when they, when they um, uh, fought a battle and won, the raping and pillaging that was going on, the raping was of the men of the other army because the most degrading thing that you could do to another man was to treat him like a woman. Our culture is different. Our values are different. I would say our values are better and as we have come to embrace women as full and equal partners in life and in the church, uh, our context is different. And before we decide that, that scripture verse from Leviticus applies to us today, we must ask the question of context. Ultimately, I would say about those seven verses of scripture that seem to speak against homosexuality and indeed are all negative, but I would maintain that they actually do not address what we are addressing today, which are relationships between people of the same sex that are mutual, that are monogamous, that are faithful, that are lifelong intentioned, and uh, that are life-giving. I would simply say that scripture never deals with that situation, with that context, because it simply didn't exist. And we have the very unfortunate thing that many modern translations of scripture use the word homosexual, which did not even exist in that time. So remember that the whole notion of sexual orientation is only about 125 years old. It was only a, a century and a quarter ago that someone posited the, the, the possibility that a certain minority of us might be, might be affectionally oriented to someone of the same sex rather than the opposite sex. So to take a word like homosexual and insert it back into an ancient text actually does violence to the text and leads us to believe that there was an understanding uh, two or three thousand years ago um, that simply did not exist. The second thing that's going on in the Anglican Communion around this debate of homosexuality has to do with authority and power. I think a lot of what we're seeing is that the Global South has finally gotten good and angry about what you and I have done to them in the colonial time. It is no wonder that they are angry, given our treatment of them. And the proposed Anglican Covenant to bring us all together, that's what the proponents would have you believe, turns out on close look to be simply a way of punishing those parts of the church that dare to color outside the lines. So a lot of this has to do with good old, raw power. Thirdly, I think it's important that not all of us in the Anglican Communion are working toward reconciliation. You know, reconciliation, as, as I'm, I'm sure President Carter will talk about later, uh, has conflict built right into it. And the thing that makes reconciliation work is that you must hold on to one another fiercely while you disagree. And no one must walk away from the table. The only way we can see our way through the conflict towards some kind of reconciliation if there is, is, if there is a commitment to staying at the table. This is is why I'm so disappointed not to be invited to the Lambeth Conference because it it seems to me that every voice must be heard. And disagree though we might, we must absolutely hold on to one one another as tightly as we can while we figure this out. I want to be in Peter Akinola, the Archbishop of Nigeria's church. The problem is he doesn't want to be in the church with me. And if Anglicanism has ever had anything to offer to the world of Christendom, it is this wonderfully uh, large and expansive umbrella under which we can disagree about many, many things. Yet finding our unity when we go forward to the communion rail and, and receive the body and blood of Christ as humbly as we can, we find our unity there. You know, we don't get to choose our family I don't know how many brothers or sisters that you have, but you had nothing to do with it. You're, You're just given your brothers and sisters. And it seems to me that in baptism, we are given our brothers and sisters. We don't have any choice in it. Peter Akinola is my brother in Christ, whether I like it or not, whether we disagree or not, whether we ever agree or not, he is my brother in Christ. And lastly, I would say that The resistance that we are seeing in the Anglican communion, particularly uh, to the American church and to the Western church in general, has to do with the hegemony that Americans and and Western cultures have had over the world for so long. Perhaps of all the cruel things that have been said about me, uh, the following was uh, the one that I I smarted from uh, the most. at a a meeting that involved 32 of the 38 provinces of the Anglican Communion, uh, someone said, You have to understand, we don't see much difference between Gene Robinson and George W. Bush. That was really cruel. He went on to say, We see America right now as swaggering around the world like some drunken cowboy having its way and the rest of the world be damned. And we experience the election and consecration of Gene Robinson as the American church just swaggering around the world, having its way, the rest of us be damned. I can understand that. And I need my brothers and sisters in the Global South those who have been victimized by the kind of uh, colonialization that that all of us in this room have been a part of. I need my brothers and sisters to tell me that, to help me understand uh, what it is going on in the world. But we also need to understand that this argument that we are having is not just about homosexuality, and it is not just about the authority of scripture, but is indeed quite complicated and we will never figure it out. We will never find God's way unless we all stay at the table and hold fiercely to one another while we figure it out. Where will it end? Where will, where will this debate go? Well, your, your guess is as good as mine. I suppose it depends upon the, the balance, uh, the sort of the centrifugal and centripetal forces at play whether those forces that are actually working to break our church apart will have sway over those of us who are trying to hold it together. I do believe that the Archbishop of Canterbury got it right, my exclusion from Lambeth notwithstanding, I think he got it right in saying that this Lambeth conference will be about conversation. It will be about strengthening the bonds of affection There are to be no resolutions, no no proclamations, no legislation, only conversation to deepen the trust and those bonds of affection. The church will change. There is no question about it. And what we are told over and over in Scripture, uh, it's astounding if you begin to look at it, is fear not. The words be not afraid or fear not occur all through Scripture. Indeed, it bookends Jesus' life. You have the angels announcing to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. And at the end, at every single resurrection experience, Jesus assures his disciples and says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. So why should we, the church, be afraid of the change that's upon us? We've changed our minds about lots of things. 150 years ago, we were still using Scripture to justify slavery. 30 years ago, in the American church, we were still not ordaining women. You're still not ordaining women bishops here in the English church. Uh, I believe it just failed in Wales as well. Isn't that right? I see some nods. So we change our minds about lots of things. We used to deny people communion uh, after they were divorced, and we would not bless their second marriages. And then, and then we began to realize, I would say by the leading of the Holy Spirit, that we were denying people communion when they needed it the most. And we knew that those second marriages were indeed a blessing to so many couples, and so we changed our minds despite the fact that out of Jesus' own mouth we have the words that, that uh, remarriage after divorce is adultery. The, the church has constantly changed its mind about things. And why not this? Jesus says this really remarkable thing. I, I swear I must have read this a thousand times and until this year never, never had it sink in. Just before Jesus dies for us He says to his disciples, there is so much more that I would teach you, but you cannot bear it right now. And so I will send the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth. It's it's an astounding thing that, that God wasn't finished with us when the canon of scripture was closed at the end of the first century. God was not finished revealing God's self to us. The scriptures reveal as, as much as God was able to reveal at that time. But, but God didn't just sort of uh, turn his back on us and, and uh, wave and wish us good luck and then leave us to our own devices. No, God sent God's spirit to be with us and to lead us into all truth. Is, is not our progress around the, the acceptance of people of color and of women and of the um, physically handicapped uh, an unending list of people that we have come to value and love, is, is that not by the leading of the Holy Spirit? And it seems to me that, that the question before the church right now is, could this also be the leading of the Holy Spirit? Could this not also? The inclusion of gay and lesbian people, could it not also be the work of the Holy Spirit? So lastly, let me talk about not the storm, but being in the eye of the storm. It seems to me that the world still hungers to know what God is really like. Just how inclusive is God's love? My answer to that is, uh, and it's become kind of a joke in my diocese because I say it so often, but God loves us beyond our wildest imagining, beyond anything you can conjure up. God loves us more than that. I, I know what it's like to grow up gay. I learned, like everyone else, that that homosexuals were an abomination before God. It's a kind of of drilled-in self-loathing. And it took me um, 39 years to, to understand that God loved me the way I was made. The miracle of Scripture for me is that despite what my church was doing with Scripture, I heard God's voice. I heard... God's voice in Scripture, saying to me what he said to his son at his baptism, which is, you are my beloved. In you I am well pleased. It is, it is an astounding moment of salvation for someone like me. I know what it's like to be a leper. Can you Think for a moment what it was like to be a leper in Jesus' time. You had to live away from your family. You lived in a graveyard or in a cave. You were required by custom to shout, unclean, unclean, when anyone came close to you. And then this itinerant preacher from Nazareth not only draws near to you, but reaches out and touches you and, and makes himself ritually unclean in doing so. Is it any wonder that it changed lives, it transformed lives? I know what that feels like. I know what it is like to be touched by the hand of God and feel clean for the first time and whole and free. I could never have imagined some 22 years ago When I thought my ordained life was over, I I could not have imagined having a life as an ordained person in the church, never mind being called to be bishop. People ask me, do I regret the last five years when God walks so closely with you, when God is so palpably close? How could you ever regret that? And in comparison to that, all the death threats seem like small potatoes indeed. So let me end by just briefly noting what I think I've learned in the last five years. That we need to stop focusing on religion and start focusing on God. You know, I, I had the, the great chance to um, debate at the Oxford Union, and, and there were 700 young people. Uh, in the hall, and and they seemed desperately hungry. Um, they they had a spiritual hunger, and and most of them thought of the church as the last place they would look for help in their relationship with God. And that night, I talked about the possibility of having a relationship with the living God. That that. Our God wants a relationship with each of us. And they were desperate to hear it. And when my opponents spoke about, well, we really should get the canon straight, we should figure this out, and the theologians should speak, you know, before we start ordaining gay people, you could just see their eyes glaze over. They wanted to know the living God. It's time we talked about that. I've learned that God's love knows no bounds. Uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, whom I'm so honored, wrote the forward to my book. Um, there's one quote that, that even you and I can remember of his. When asked uh, who God loves, uh, he said, All, 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 which just about says it. And that includes my enemies and my greatest detractors. You know, Peter Akinola, the Archbishop of Nigeria, and I are going to be in heaven together. I I say that uh, partly to irritate him. (laughs) But mostly because I believe it's true. I believe in the end, all of us will find ourselves, by the grace of God, in God's kingdom. And we will get along because God won't have it any other way. So why don't we start trying now? And I've learned that gay and lesbian children... Are loved by God as well, and that one day, not too very far in the future, we will look back on this debate with as much shame as we look back on the date uh, on the debate over abolition, on our subjugation of women, and all of those things about which we have to feel uh, so badly and i 've learned that the church need not be afraid; we need not be afraid you know um, uh, I, I think Cecil B. DeMille got it wrong in the Ten Commandments. You know the the great movie, and the the ancient Hebrews and Moses get to the to the to the uh, Red Sea, and it all just magnificently parts, and there's a a nice dry path to go go through. Here's how I think it really happened. I think I think they got to the edge of the sea, and and Moses just put one foot into the water, except that the water parted just enough for that one footfall. And then he put the next foot forward and and just enough of the Red Sea parted for another dry footfall. I think I think he didn't see the other side. I, I don't think it was made that easy. I think he was just called upon to take one step at a time in the right direction and trust that God would take care of that step. And I think that's how we're meant to live this Christian life, that we are meant to put one foot forward at a time, and it's not necessary that we see the end. Although I do believe that I know where it's headed. I believe that we are headed for the full inclusion of gay and lesbian people in the life and ministry of the church. That's what keeps me going. I may not live to see it, but I believe without any doubt that that's where we're headed. Let me close with one of my, my favorite pieces of scripture, and I, I would address any of you who are gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender in, in our midst, and, 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 and we'll let those of you who are homosexually challenged listen, listen in just a bit. There's this wonderful story in the, the third chapter of Acts. Peter and James are teaching at the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, they pass a man that everyone knows has been lame since birth. And uh, this man uh, is carried every day, and he's left at the outer gate. Because of his infirmity, he's not allowed into the temple. So he's left at the gate uh, to beg for alms. And and he begs Peter and James for money, and and Peter... Uh, says this amazing thing. He says, look at us. I don't have any money, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And this man, lame since birth, not only stands up, but begins to run and dance and runs right into the temple where in his heart, He has believed he belonged all along. Gay and lesbian people in the church, we need to live our lives with such joy, with such integrity, with such honesty, that there will be no denying God's spirit in us. And when you think about it, it's what's true of all of us. We all have something that makes us feel unworthy something that makes us not feel right with God. And, and this living God can touch you in your unworthiness, whatever it is, small or large, and make you whole and give you the ability to run and dance and leap with joy and to live your life with integrity that will be the witness to the world that God wants. I I am standing here today because this great God of ours has done that in my life and can do that in yours. It is a joy to be with you. Thank you very much.
0: Ladies and, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we've got about ten minutes for questions. From here, it sounds as if there's a jumbo jet taking off just behind us. Can you hear that? I'm yeah. oh. <laughs> very sorry about that, but you all need to speak up just as much as us. Who would like to ask the first question? Gentleman at the back there. Uh, could I ask you what you... Uh uh, what you make of the stance of the Roman Catholic Church, which is, after all, the, I believe, the largest Christian denomination in the world uh, on these issues you've been talking about.
1: I, I, I've been very, very disappointed, of course, in in the Roman Catholic Church uh, and, it, and its stance. The, the thing that concerned me the most was the the, the statement made a couple of years ago by, by the new pope, uh, which once again... Uh, uh, made the scurrilous and, and, and utterly debunked connection uh, between homosexuality and uh, child abuse. Uh, that, that is so unhelpful and is an act of violence, I think, against, against uh, all of us. Uh, um, and we don't have time to go into this, but I believe that there is such a connection between misogyny and homophobia that the Roman Catholic Church isn't going to get very far around the issue of gay and lesbian people until it makes some progress around women. Uh, that... I, I, led a, I led a retreat uh, two summers ago with 75 gay Roman Catholic priests from all over America. I mean, we had to meet in a place with uh, gave the group a bogus name so that the Archdiocese wouldn't shut it down. And uh, and they they wanted me to suggest to them how they could uh, move their their church along. And I said, I, I think what you need to do is you need to get involved in the women's ordination movement, uh, because once you, once you get clear about your your stance toward women, the, um, the the stance around gay and lesbian people I think inevitably follows.
0: Gentlemen over there.
1: Uh, thank you, Bishop. You've just answered my question. Oh, uh, lovely. <laughs> that was a twofer.
0: Gentleman in the middle in the, uh, in the Macintosh.
1: And a lovely color it is, too.
0: Coming out for pink. <laughs> uh, uh, Bishop, what if I could ask you to broaden the question in relation to the way the church seems to be out of step with the world. Which is more damaging to the cause of religion and indeed God? Uh, The division caused within the church caused by homosexuality or the separation from the rest of the world caused by a rejection of evolution by more than half of Christian Americans? Which is the more damaging?
1: Boy, that's a toss-up, isn't it? Uh, They're both terribly damaging. Um, I mean one of the things that that really concerns me about this debate that 's going on uh, right now in the Anglican Communion is, is that I, it it just looks terrible and and again, I think it, 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 it portrays a church that is more focused on religion and order than it is upon god and and god 's uh, love and liberation. Um, it, it still astounds me. Uh, it, I think your your facts are correct about uh, those who, who who think evolution is uh, uh, ought to be taught alongside so-called creationism. Uh, I thought we fought and won that battle a long time ago. It it it, uh, it it's very depressing for me. Um, but it, it, it certainly shows you the, the power of the conservative religious right in, in the United States. It's still a, an enormous force and, um, and it's real. I mean, you know, we had, a, we had a real contender for the nomination in the Republican Party for president uh, who maintained that belief. So um, uh, I think both make the church look hopelessly um, irrelevant and silly.
0: Next question. Just in front there. I think...
1: Yeah, it's on.
0: Oh, I think it worries a lot of us in the UK about the close alignment of church and state in the USA. I mean, we talk about probably a woman president or a black president, but I wonder how likely it would ever be to have an atheist president. And if you think that... To me, it's a real significant harm in the world as a whole that the American government so closely allies itself with the Christian church. Thank you.
1: Are you not the ones that have an established church? Yes. (laughs) Did I get that wrong? Uh, Actually the separation of church and state in in the United States, uh, although certainly always under challenge, I believe is, is safe and sound. Um, uh, We we fiercely believe in that. Uh, We always have to guard against those who, if they had their own way, would create a a theocratic state. Um, I I also think that there's a difference between what uh, some people will say to be elected president and then what their real stance will be. Um, uh, We we certainly fought this out in the election of uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, and, and since, and it certainly came up in, in, uh, uh, in the presidential primaries, uh, but I, I don't see that as a real threat. Are, are there individuals who would do that if, if they had the chance? Absolutely. And uh, does it still get votes? Yes, but less than it used to. The, the religious right is beginning to be a thing of the past, and we're seeing evangelicals uh, in the states. Uh, getting more mainstream, and certainly as younger people come in, uh, they are finally getting concerned about the environment and uh, human rights around the world and so on, and uh, I don't see it uh, as the threat it was, say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, I may be Pollyannish about that, but I I don't think so. I'm I'm actually uh, quite hopeful that that's that's on the wane.
0: You have have to remember that... uh until into the middle of the last century, American presidents by and large refused to disclose or discuss their religious affiliations. Thomas Jefferson, whose whose image is on Mount Rushmore, sat in his old age in Monticello, cutting out the bits of the Bible he didn't believe in.
1: It's called the Jefferson Bible, and all the miracles are gone. I mean, it's really an astounding thing.
0: No resurrection, no virgin birth, um... He couldn't get himself elected these days. Next question. Lady round... Bishop Jean, I used to work in Africa, and when it rained like this, it was seen as a sign of blessing. I'd like to thank you for the blessing that that you give to the church throughout the world.
1: And it's quite the blessing, isn't it? It
0: certainly is today, yes, Yes, indeed. Um, I understand that not one of the um, bishops invited to Lambeth has refused on the basis of the fact that there will be women bishops present. And yet, in the Church of England, the whole question of women in the Episcopate has... I'm told got more possibility of splitting the church than the whole question of um, homosexuality. I wonder if you could comment on that because you ask us to stay at the table, but I want to be there as a full and equal partner. And as an Anglican clergywoman, I certainly don't feel that.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting in this debate we're having about homosexuality, we're told uh, that there needed to be a consensus around the uh, communion before any member church moved in this direction. Yet we still don't have a consensus around women um, uh, in the ordained ministry, either as deacons or priests or uh, bishops. We have uh, provinces all over the map on that, some with full exclusion and some with just partial inclusion. Um, You may be interested to know that uh, at the last... Uh, Lambeth Conference 10 years ago. Remember, uh, 20 years ago, it was the year before the first woman, Barbara Harris, was elected bishop in the States. Uh, by the by last uh, Lambeth Conference, I believe there were maybe 11 uh, bishops from Canada, New Zealand, and, and the States. At the last Lambeth Conference, the bishops were told to leave their Rochet and Shamirs home. That's the 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 big billowy white sleeves with the the uh, red um, sort of overgarment because they did here's the reason they didn't want women to be seen in the garb of a bishop so everyone was told to wear purple cassocks instead and my understanding is that that is the instruction that has been given again this year uh, and that all has to do with um, well, I hate to say it, it has to do with trying to keep the peace and manage the church rather than lead the church. And what we need is leadership.
0: Two last questions. The lady over there. Thank you very much, um, Bishop Robinson, for what you have said. The quote I shall go away with is that God's love is profligate. I think that will serve me nicely. I'm a lay woman in the Church of England, and I campaign very actively both for gay priests and for women bishops. But I wonder whether we would be better as campaigners to change course and to campaign for election rather than appointment.
1: Oh, I would love to see you do that. Um, it is an astounding thing and, and, and an empowering thing to be called by the laity and clergy of a diocese to be their bishop. With no other bishop, no church committee, no one involved except that group of laity and clergy. And so when you are, when you are called, it, it really means something. Uh, you know, I... I uh, people ask me what, what life is like in my diocese. Well, uh, I'm just a bishop in my diocese. And if you want to see what the church is going to be like after we've finished obsessing about sex, come to New Hampshire because we spend no time on it. We're just getting about the gospel. But the reason for that is, is that those people there who are not trying to make a point, were not trying to poke the Anglican communion in the eye, just simply, for whatever reason, by the grace of God, thought I might be the best person to lead them into the future. And so uh, I have this uh, wonderful experience of being in this place where I, I love them. And for some reason they seem to love me, but it's because they called me. Uh, I, I think you may very, very much be onto to something.
0: One last question, the lady over there.
1: I live in Herefordshire. And I'm sorry, where, where, are, where are you? Here. Oh, yes, thank you. I live in Herefordshire. Fairly recently, the bishop vetoed the appointment of a youth worker in the diocese on the grounds of his sexuality. The man took him to a tribunal, and in fact, the tribunal found his his favor. With the result, the diocese now has to pay thousands of pounds to this person. I recently met with the bishop, who assumed I was one of his parishioners, um, I quickly disabused him of that as a very proud mother of a gay son, and challenged him, not personally, but about the church's homophobic attitude. And all he said, enigmatically, watch for the Lambeth Conference. I'm in despair. Well, there's not going to be much to watch for at the Lambeth Conference. And I, I, I don't mean that negatively. Uh, you remember I said that uh, the, at least the way it's designed, it is simply about conversations, deepening relationships. There are to be no decisions made, no statements issued. Now, if, if something like that happens, you will know that a, a coup has taken place and that the Archbishop of Canterbury has, has not had the courage to rule it out of order. That, at least as it's planned, there will be no decisions taken at this Lambeth Conference. Uh, It means that we won't move forward or backward in terms of any official stand. But remember, uh, part of what this uh, debate about authority is is that the Lambeth Conference has no authority. We do not belong to a church in which some centralized curia tells the rest of us what we have to believe. They might, they might take a snapshot of what they believe at any given time, and they might offer it to the church for its own education and edification. But it, uh, we, we do not have a centralized curia that, that tells us what to believe. I believe that has something to do with why Henry VIII started this church <laughs> and why Elizabeth perfected it. And part of what she perfected was this this uh, remarkable balance between uh, interdependence and autonomy. And, and that's what we are trying desperately to maintain in the Anglican Communion.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, we, uh, we have to clear the hall because Christopher Hitchens is on next.
1: <laughs> You'll pardon uh, me if I don't come back for that. Uh, I actually had a
0: wonderful chat with him last night. They need a little time and space to uh, clear it out. Um, I have there an are announcement. two announcements, two announcements. Bishop Jean has one. I have the other, and that is um, to urge you all to go to the bookshop where he's going to be signing copies of his book, and you can uh, renew the debate with him there in a few moments. But first, he's got something else to say.
1: Yes, I, I've been asked to read this announcement uh, uh, by Elizabeth Bingham, who is the uh, wife of Tom Bingham, the festival president. Uh, and this is about a... A, um, a collection that is going to be ta- you know you really can't have a gathering of the church without a collection uh, and let me just read this to you because it, it's a, a very very worthwhile uh, cause and I hope that you will respond generously SOSIL is a specialist charity working in the dry lands of Africa it's having a collection after this talk to raise money for its work in the Nuba mountains of Sudan where the population suffered severely during the 25 year long civil war We shouldn't let the horrors of Darfur uh, wipe out our recollections of the earlier war. SOS Sahel works to regenerate the environment and to improve the livelihoods of both nomads and farmers. It has a long record of achievement in the drylands of both East and West Africa. So please, please give generously, and thank you all so much.